0: Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon
1: Bridge. I came in with the unfortunate conceit that I could negotiate anything. I mean, I think I had been a pretty good negotiator in the course of my life as a trial lawyer, and I found out very quickly that the business of Washington is not solving problems. The business of Washington is churning the system. My goalposts for success, if you will, were that the NEA will still be around when I'm out the door.
0: All right, everyone. Today I was very fortunate to get to talk to John Fronmeyer, a name that many of our listeners are likely familiar with. John Fronmeyer is the former head of the National Endowment for the Arts. He was appointed by President George H.W. Bush during a very challenging high temperature and turbulent time for that federal agency. Robert Maplethorpe and Andre Serrano were these very controversial figures. And there was actually some other controversial figures who were awarded funding by the NEA to produce art. And the art they produced drew the ire of the Christian Conservative Coalition, including members of Capitol Hill, senators and congressmen, who objected strongly to that money being spent in that way. And it was this big firestorm. And our ends up holding onto this position for two and a half years and preserving the NEA. But as he says in this episode, he was ultimately canned from the job, though he technically resigned. He wrote a book about it called Leaving Town Alive that I was just able to read through. And it is incredibly funny and entertaining. I read a couple of the excerpts that made me laugh. So we talk a little bit about that. But John also came back to Oregon. And in 2008, he announced his candidacy for the United States Senate. This was the year that uh, Gordon Smith was an incumbent And then Speaker of the Oregon House, Jeff Merkley, had just won a close primary over Steve Novick to be the Democratic nominee. Fronmaier ultimately drops out. He does not end up on the ballot. He describes why in this episode, the challenges he encountered and why he ultimately pulled his name off. And we talk about third parties. We talk about the Betsy Johnson candidacy and how it was similar to John's attempt at a high office as a third party candidate and why structurally third parties are really challenged and how his thinking on third party candidates has evolved over time. We also talk about some of the bigger challenges of our time. John is a prolific author. He's written seven books with an eighth on the way, both fiction and nonfiction. We'll link to his website in the description here. But we talk about polarization in politics. We talk about ethics. We talk about leadership. John's a, a very wise guy who has lots of experience and lived experience that colors the conversation with stories and anecdotes that I found really interesting and engaging. So I hope you enjoyed this week's
1: episode with John Frommeyer. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections with government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Long's political law practice, check out our website at harangue.com. That's www.harangue.com.
0: All right, John Fronmayer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. So, John, the Fronmeyer name is a big name in Oregon. We actually did an episode of this podcast with Bill Gary and Bob Sterringer, where we talked about Dave Fronmeyer and his career in Oregon politics. But you also have held very prominent positions at the state and national level. In researching you for this show, I discovered both of your parents actually were very prominent civic leaders in the Southern Oregon community. So I'm kind of curious what it was like growing up in a kind of civic forward family And did you always feel destined to be in this sort of public affairs space, or was that by accident?
1: (laughs) Well, my brother Dave and I shared a bedroom. We were close as brothers, and we would spend time talking at night before we went to sleep. And he, from very early on, wanted to be a United States senator. Uh That was a goal that he had had. And he got a great introduction really to international things because he was an American field service student, the first one to come from Menford High School. And he went to Northern Germany and it really opened his eyes and I think led directly to his going to Harvard and then ultimately to Oxford and all of that. I, on the other hand, really have never been interested in politics per se, but I did get a, a good deal of political introduction from my parents. I remember sitting on Wayne Morris's lap when I was eight years old <laughs> in my parents' living room. And that was when he, Wayne Morris was still a Republican. And then you remember that Wayne Morris became an independent for a very short mm-hmm. time and actually took a chair and sat in the, in aisle the middle with yeah. the Republicans and the Democrats in the United States Senate. And he found out very quickly that if you don't caucus with somebody, you don't caucus with anybody and you don't have any power. So he then went over to the Democratic side. I remember my father was the chairperson, I think, for Mark Hatfield's Mark first Hatfield. uh, yeah. campaign in the Southern Oregon area. So, yeah, I mean, politics was around, but my mother, on the other hand, was heavily involved in the arts. Uh, mm-hmm. She started a group called the Mother Singers, sort of PTA group. She was a fine pianist and accompanied uh, lots of singers and So the family was really split between the sort of the political side, the artistic side. And I think I ended up more on the artistic side than the political.
0: Well, so a couple other questions. So there's a group of young men that I mentor who they're now in college age and a couple of them can't quite figure out what they want to do professionally with life and when I was reading some of your background, I'm like, I think they would empathize with this. So you thought about being a priest, you went the pre-med route down at Stanford, you thought about being a professional singer, you joined the Navy in the middle of the Vietnam War. It seemed like there's a time in your, early in your life where you weren't quite sure where you fit or what was going to be your calling. Can you reflect a little bit on what that time was like and how you learned or grew from it?
1: Well, it was confusing, actually, because there seemed to be a lot of options. And, I, you know, I admired people who were singular, my brother being one, you know, he knew what he wanted to do, but I didn't. And so, <laughs> yes, I had this epiphany when I hit my head on the diving board trying to do a backflip oh. that I might want to be a doctor. And then I took some science courses and my, my laboratory cat that, that I was <laughs> dissecting was stolen out of my locker. And I, oh, this isn't for me. And so... You know, and then I did go to seminary for a couple of years and realized that I didn't have the faith that I needed to do that kind of a job. And, and really, I mean, I kind of backed into the law because, you know, it wasn't all that's left, but it was something I was pretty sure I could do. But and really, I think I really admired two of my siblings, my older sister Mira and my younger brother Phil, who became professional singers because I knew I could make a living being a lawyer and I could still sing. But going into the arts as a way of making your living is a very dicey proposition. And so they really had guts to do that.
0: Well, we'll get back to the arts because that plays a very big role in in your career. But I've been thinking about sports a lot recently. I was at a town hall of Senator Ron Wyden's and There's a couple questions about sports. And one of course was about the PAC 12 conference and Oregon joining the big 12. And then there was another question that was sort of aligned to this conference question that was basically about like, what's the point of college sports anymore? Is it just professional sports? Is it all about the money? And I was reading your biography it's clear that athletics played a giant role in your life. You were the Oregon High School Athlete Scholar of the Year in 1960. Congratulations on that award. And you that's, also That's
1: before <laughs> recorded history, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I also like that in your bio you mention you went out for the golf team every single year at Stanford and you never made it. I went out for the club soccer team at the University of Oregon just one year and didn't make it and got the hint and moved on. But I'm, <laughs> I'm curious if you reflect on the role of sports, particularly as a young man in developing, whether it's leadership or a sense of self-confidence or, or why it was important to you.
1: For all of those reasons and many more beyond that. I mean, you know, sports are fun. Uh, mm-hmm. That's, I think, why most people do them. And my goodness, if, if you ever played golf, uh, you realize that it is full of frustrations and (laughs) you wonder, why why am I out here? Except, you know, it's it's great to be out on the grass and, and with friends and all of that sort of thing. And in my later life, I have been a competitive rower for the last 30 or well, almost 40 years now. And really, that's the ultimate team sport, because in an eight person shell, if you're not all doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same time, it's going to be awful and you're going to know it. But on the other hand, if you're all doing that, right, it, I mean, there's just nothing that's quite as thrilling as that kind of a race. There is a bonding that's involved. There's self-challenging that's involved which i think is extraordinarily important for a satisfying life to know that you've challenged yourself and sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't but even when you don't make it those aren't really failures those are learning experiences and so i you know i just i just think athletics have an incredibly important role to play in our society and i i weep really that oregon is leaving the pac12 and that mm. money seems to be the only thing that's driving Collegiate sport, because it does become then just another form of professional sport. And uh, I mean, I, I went to Stanford and I I would hope that Stanford would join the Ivy League if it could, mm. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, sports are, are secondary there to education. And after all, the reason to go to college is for education, not necessarily for sports, at yeah. least not most of us.
0: That's right. So let's go then to the NEA. So you're in Oregon and you're serving, I think you're chairman at the time of the Oregon Arts Commission. I think you were appointed by Bob Straub to serve on the Oregon Arts Commission, which before we go further, what is the Oregon Arts Commission? I think most people probably won't be super familiar.
1: The Oregon Arts Commission is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Arts. And when the National Endowment was founded in the 19... 1965, part of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, they provided that the federal funds could go to the states, but every state had to have an arts commission. And so when the powers that then be were lobbying the Oregon legislature to have a state arts commission, they said, oh, and you'll never have to put any state money into it because it'll just be a repository for federal money. Well, that was a big mistake (laughs) because Oregon was... 50th in funding, state funding for years and years, because the legislature really didn't fund the Arts Commission at all, or not very much anyway. But so the Oregon Arts Commission is uh, a governor appointed board of half a dozen or a dozen people, and they give grants and they set arts policy for the state. And they receive about 40% of the National Endowment's budget goes to the states. So they see got a state allotment.
0: I was reading this Washington Post article about your appointment, and I think you said wow. that Oregon went from 45th to 37th in state funding, and you said, whoopee! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so you're you're practicing law at the time at a pretty prominent Portland firm, but you're also serving on the Arts Commission board, is that right? Right. And so you're, it seems like the subtext is you're kind of getting tired of practicing law, or it's not as exciting as it used to be? What were you thinking or navigating professionally at that before you're appointed, before you pursue the appointment?
1: Well, a couple of things, Ben. One is it's axiomatic that people in the law, after you've been at it for about 15 years and certainly not as much as 20 years, think, whoa, is this all there is? you know? And hmm. I think a lot of people are looking for a way to get over the wall at that time and that was me I, I you know was i kind of felt like being a litigator in a commercial firm i was just moving the money around at the end of the day mm-hmm. these guys had more and those guys had less and is this how i want to spend the rest of my working for pay life and the answer to that was pretty clearly no but the other thing is that it in this constant battle of sort of appraising your assets and liabilities and what you really want to do I really thought the arts is where I wanted to be, and mm-hmm. that I had a pretty good education both in the arts and in the way legal things work and the way the government works. That if there were one job in the whole wide world that I wanted more than any other, it was chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. And so I set out to try to get it when Reagan was first elected in 1980. and I. I didn't. Uh, I got you an interview. A, you that had a one-minute interview. Yeah.
0: You should tell that story, though. So you, you've identified the NEA job as something you really want to do, and you've done, like, maybe a quarter of the work you need to actually pull this off. But you get a meeting with this guy, so you fly to D.C., and what happens? <laughs>
1: well, I waited for about a half an hour in one of the adding rooms of the White House, and I was finally called in for the interview, and uh, he said, why are you here? And I said, I'd like to be chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. And he said, that's not a priority with us. And the interview was over. (laughs) I was out the door. It was, uh, you know, 45 seconds.
0: (laughs) I think that is hilarious. So you say, you know, the, the first chapter of the book, you say... Anyone who's, there's a quote, anyone who says the president called me out of the blue and asked me to serve my country is blowing smoke. And this was interesting to me too, because you, you're essentially running for this job. It's not a traditional election, but you're calling in favors. You're trying to get friends of friends to call their senator, to call the office of personnel management. Like there's this whole orchestration that has to go into this. And you you kind of have a sense of who your opponents might be or the alternative candidates might be. But before you get to that, I love this kitchen table conversation where your wife is considering running for school board and you're considering pursuing this NEA job. And you basically come to this conclusion, let's just try to do both and see where the chips fall. And then the race is on, it seems. <laughs>
1: Well, and the tragic part of that, as far as Leah was concerned, is that she was elected to the school board. And ultimately then after that, I was appointed to the NEA job. And so at her first school board meeting, she resigned.
0: was it her first? Oh, man. (laughs) So tell us about this process of becoming selected to be NEA chair. It feels like it's an agonizing process. It takes a very long time. There's almost no information shared with you from the administration throughout the process. So
1: how did it work? Well, there wasn't any clear route. I was the fifth chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. So there only had been four before me. And, you know, it wasn't clear where they came from. Well, they, Roger Stevens was the first and he was a well-known Washington figure. Nancy Hanks was probably the most prominent of prior NEA chairs. And she was a wonderful politician. and interestingly enough, got the biggest increases in the NEA's budget during the Nixon administration. Hmm. But I did know, I had contacts with both Bob Packwood and Mark Hatfield and asked them to put my name in the hopper. And I did have some experience in the time before when I had, when Reagan was first elected. And I'd done that primarily by writing letters to people. But I decided that the that the way to do it was to call people up and just say you know look you're the chair of the idaho arts commission and i'm the chair of the oregon arts commission it wouldn't be nice to have somebody who understands state arts commissions being on the national level and you know if that person could put in a word for me with their senator and that's kind of the way it went and then the other thing that was fortuitous as far as i was concerned is that i Come from the West Coast, and it had always been sort of an Eastern Arts establishment kind of organization, or at least the perception of it was. And so, I think I had a leg up being from the West. And you, you never. There's actually... one other leg up, which uh, yeah is was uh, that turned out to be both a <laughs> a burden and a benefit, I guess. I have a degree in Christian ethics, and about that time that I was being considered was when Maplethorpe and Serrano uh, uh-huh. were big news, Serrano being the piss Christ and Mapplethorpe being the what they called homoerotic art. And they thought, you know, here's a good religious character who's going to put the kibosh on all of that kind of art. So, you know, that D- was... Didn't uh,
0: work out quite how they thought didn't it didn't was. work like, out yeah. that way. Two of my favorite lines from this section, "You go." You say, here's a quote, my brother Dave, the Republican Attorney General of Oregon, wrote to Andy Card, an aide to Chief of Staff John Sununu, making a completely unbiased endorsement of his brother for the job. <laughs> and then you also say, <laughs> my only political credentials were that I had shared my brother Dave's campaigns to become Oregon's AG in 1980 and 84 and had sung a few songs at the Dorchester Conference's tent show, before an audience of inebriated and therefore overly enthusiastic Republicans who I'm sure remembered nothing the next day. (laughs) (laughs) The the glamorous job of trying out for uh, NEA chairman. So we'll skip to the punchline here. You've alluded to Robert Mapplethorpe and Andre Serrano. Basically, they are exploring the edges of what is appropriate to be federally subsidized art And there's this massive backlash, actually some parallels to more recent political moments where the far right wing, the Christian conservative coalition is just like up in arms. And they've got some very powerful allies on Capitol Hill in the House and the Senate who are trying to monkey with the NEA's selection process. They're cutting the budget symbolically. And you, once you take the helm there, are sort of in the middle of this where you've got an administration who's trying to look out for their own political well-being. You've got Congress who is very divided on this question, actually. There are some allies in Congress. And then you're in the middle and you kind of, you approach this job thinking, you know, we can have difficult conversations together. We can compromise, like we can come to a solution. And it seems like you you abandon that belief relatively quickly. Tell us about that saga of dealing with this high tension Spotlight constantly on this issue, front page of the New York Times. How did you do it?
1: Well, I came in with the uh, unfortunate conceit that I could negotiate anything. I mean, I, I think I had been a pretty good negotiator in the course of my life as a trial lawyer, a lot of the negotiation techniques, uh, the ideas of getting to yes and that sort of thing. And I thought I could sit down with people like Jesse Helms and and work things out. And I found out very quickly that the business of Washington is not solving problems. The business of Washington is churning the system. And it's astonishing to me that Congress ever gets anything done, because there are so many egos that are constantly needing to be stroked. And there are so many personal agendas that are not in line with anything that the administration or the opposition, either one, want to do. And uh, Alan Simpson, who was a senator from Wyoming, Wyoming, one of the best legislators that I know, a very funny guy, wonderful guy, really, said, you know, there are a few of us here that want to get things done. But for the most part, people just want to get credit or, you know, make the other side look bad. And so my job was to try to keep the Keep the lights on, really. I mean, they were they were gunning for us from a lot of different angles, and my, you know, ultimately, I my goalposts for success, if you will, were that the NEA will still be around and I'm out the door. So, what did the administration?
0: What did the what did the president? It's President George H. W. Bush. What did they want from you in that role during this? Like, were they telling you what they expected, or did they just want the problem to go away? Like, how independent were you
1: really in that kind of a role? They wanted the problem to go away, which obviously it was not going to. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's teaching cats to march. It's, you know, artists are, are some of the most innovative and interesting and involved people, on the planet and you know, it's not a, the NEA doesn't tell artists what to do. What the NEA does is to try to provide funds and a platform for people to do things that they're gonna do. So the agenda is always that of the artist and very seldom that of the agency. Mm. But the administration for the most part just wanted the NEA out of the headlines because it was always bad news for the administration. And the White House finally, you know, because I was perceived to be sort of a renegade, sent a watcher with me when I would go up to talk to people on the Hill. And uh, so it was difficult. Um, and, and the other problem that I had is, and, and this is a problem, I think, for any of these sort of outlying agencies that don't have a person that actually sits on a cabinet position, I needed to have a voice inside the White House that would be at the meetings, the the internal White House meetings, and could carry our water for that sort of meeting. And so I would uh, cultivate somebody like David Bates, for example, and then he'd go off and get a job in business somewhere for $400,000 a year, and I'd have (laughs) to start all over and try to cultivate somebody else who could carry our water. And the end result of of that was that the White House would come back to me with some sort of order, do this, where I had no input whatsoever and never had said, you know, there's a lot of really good reasons why that's a really bad idea. And so it was it was difficult. And and then the, the one other thing that, that really got me in trouble is that George H.W. Bush, who I thought was a great guy said, whenever you need to talk to me, you know, call Patty Prisak. She's my sort of binder here. And I'll invite you for breakfast as soon as my schedule allows it. And we'll talk about it. Hmm. Well, and then John Sununu, who was chief of staff, said, everything that goes to the president goes through me. Uh, you know? So <laughs> yeah. I, I would have had this breakfast with the president. And he said, do X, Y, and Z, or those are OK. And Sununu would then say, X, Y, and Z aren't OK. And I would be screwed.
0: Oh, that's fascinating.
1: So before we get to
0: the end of this chapter, you were there for two and a half years and I imagine there was a lot of other things going on on top of the political controversy. Are there some accomplishments or events that stand out in your mind as things that you're particularly proud to have been a part of or where you felt good about what the agency was doing?
1: Well, we started an international program which hadn't really existed before in any substantial way which I thought was really exemplary, <clears throat> we did a lot of work on enabling the states really to do what the states wanted to do, which I think is a good federalistic kind of, mm-hmm. of program. And, I mean, this may, might not seem like much of an accomplishments, but we stayed alive and we built coalitions. And a lot of those coalitions were not typical of what you would expect for the arts. For example, the AFL-CIO. Why them? Well, they have the stage hands union. And the stagehands were a big deal for opera and symphonies and everything that has a theatrical-based existence. So we did some good things. Um, But, you know, for the most part, we were trying to catch the grenades and throw them back over the wall before they exploded. Your book is called Leaving Town Alive. So by that by that
0: measure you succeeded. You you left Washington in one piece. <laughs> yeah. So at what point do you does it become clear to you that you've lost the administration's confidence?
1: Um well, this is not exactly the question that you're answering, but I knew I was going to get fired about 9 months into the job. Oh my god, uh, because I knew that I simply couldn't just take the um you know do what the administration told me to do i had sworn an oath, oath to the constitution and the first amendment is a very big part of the constitution and the artists of the speakers when they're being funded by the government, and so you know, you really have to respect the speaker. And Sununu's telling me to put the kibosh on these artists, you know, just make them behave. Well, I couldn't do that. I mean, not only could I not physically do it; they would never listen. But it would be a First Amendment violation for me to do so. So I knew that sooner or later I was going to have to, you know, you know, I, I was I was going to clash with them in a way that would would get me fired. My my dad gave me some very good advice in, huh. in that regard. I said, geez, dad, I don't know if I can keep doing this job. And he said, make them fire you. Yeah. Why did he say that? Well, I think that he, he recognized that that I, I should go out on a matter of principle as opposed to go out just because they'd pissed me off. <laughs> That's, I love that. So, but so nine months into the job, you
0: hang on quite a long time after after that, and I think so there's this moment in October where you thought, you did you have a conversation with the president about leaving?
1: I did. You know, I said that I'd like to go back to private life, but that there were a bunch of things that I wanted to do before I left. And, you know, he, he just said, you know, fine, basically. And, you know, I think he, George H.W. Bush, was a lot less concerned about the kinds of things that, you know, the publicity that was going on than his minders were. And I, that's that's not unusual, I think, in staffers to a president. You know, The staffers are much more concerned about this and that. And the, and the person in the job says, hey, you know, let it happen.
0: So eventually, I mean, you technically resign, but it is made clear in the book that, as you say, you were canned <laughs> from the job. <laughs> Where does that experience leave you in terms of your thinking on the First Amendment and your thinking on censorship? Some of these like giant theoretical ideas that you were sort of living on a day-to-day basis. Did it change how you thought about those things or did it just affirm your beliefs that
1: you entered the office with? No, I, I became radicalized in terms of the First Amendment. I went in as a First Amendment moderate, came out as a First Amendment radical. And what I mean by that is that there are things in, in public life that one can compromise on, but free speech is not one of them. Hmm. Um, and that's important for multiple reasons. There, Forgive me for going into my professorial mood here, but oh, there are it. five things that the, that the First Amendment protects. Religion is number one, and it's both freedom of religion and freedom from religion. So it can't be established by the federal government and by the way, those Christians who are talking about a Christian nation are totally full of it as far as as their fealty to the Constitution, because you can't advocate for a Christian nation and be an advocate for the Constitution, particularly the First Amendment. You just can't do it. Mm-hmm. It's not just the First Amendment, but Article 6 of the Constitution says there shall be no religious test for any office of public confidence. So, you know, the Constitution is very clear on that point. Mm -hmm. The second thing that the First Amendment protects is press and then speech and press and petition and assembly. And those last four things to petition the government for redress of grievance and, and to assemble with like minded people is how our government changes without revolution, radical revolution. So the First Amendment is absolutely the critical gear in the evolution of of American government. And there's just nothing that is more important. And then what we have in our current day uh, is a crisis that I don't think was anticipated by the First Amendment. Because I think the First Amendment, well, the First Amendment was passed in an era of newsprint. So people had a consistent source of information information it does not contemplate the siloed sources that we get on the internet and through electronics today. And so just the first amendment is really in peril. And I, I have some, you know, this is a much bigger conversation, but, but I think particularly since we're in a post-truth era where there are, are these very toxic sources of untruth and purposeful untruth, not just accidental lies, but, but, you know, streams of bullet that are coming out. Um, you know, we've got to really rethink how the First Amendment works and and try to protect it. When we
0: were emailing to set this up, you, the phrase, the question you pose is whether the First Amendment is flexible enough to deal with systematic lying. What do you mean by that
1: question? Well, I mean, I'm not pulling any punches here. You got Fox News for one thing, which I mean, and they make no bones about it. Their game plan is to find out what the news is and then tell you the opposite. And that's insidious, particularly for the people who are glued to it and are getting what I believe to be, you know, totally false information or at least skewed information. Now, others will claim that MSNBC or Rachel Maddow or any number of other sources are the same on the other side of the platform. But I don't believe that's quite true because I don't think anybody, or at least the ones that are well-known on the left side of the political spectrum, are there to consciously and uh, systematically lie to you. You know, they'll spin it the way they want to spin it, but that's a little bit different than telling you something that's flat out untrue or just not covering that, which is, you know, out there and, and part of the deal. But I think the other thing that's out there is that, That any democracy is is absolutely dependent upon ninety nine percent of the people voluntarily obeying the law, Mm -hmm. and I think that there's a lot of scofflawing going on out there now, where people are are simply saying, "Yeah, that's the law, but screw that, we're going to do what we want to do." And the Alabama legislature and its redistricting is a pretty good example of that, where the Supreme Court has said, "No, you didn't." create two majority Black districts, or nearly so. And the Alabama legislature says, well, up yours, Supreme Court, come and enforce it. So in your view, is there a legal
0: or regulatory solution or answer to the post-truth era, to systematic lying, to media being weaponized to advance political objectives? I mean, that is a dicey question constitutionally, and, you know, the First Amendment is front and center there. So how do you Yeah, I'm kind of. I'm just curious. Like, what do you what do you think about that question?
1: I keep thinking that ultimately, what's going to save us, if we are savable, is people of goodwill. And I've been looking for people of goodwill in the Republican Party for a long time. (laughs) And I have to say, I haven't been finding many of them. I mean, you know, I I just thought, well, let me back up a couple of steps. I thought when Trump lost, it would be like after. Nazi Germany was defeated; that you wouldn't be able to find a Nazi anymore. And after Trump lost, you wouldn't be able to find any MAGAs anymore. And I couldn't have been more wrong, hmm. as it turned out. The, you know, the people that were MAGAs kind of doubled down on, uh, and then, and then you had January sixth, which absolutely broke my heart. Um, Me too. I mean, I just never thought that we would see people attacking the Capitol and trying to overturn the results of an election. And so now we're in the process of trying legally to sort all this out. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna take a long time because the law does, particularly to sort out as weighty issues as we're dealing with in terms of the survival of the democracy, but it's gonna take people of goodwill. I mean, it's gonna take people on juries of goodwill. It's gonna take people who are willing to listen I mean you know there, there there are a lot of us out there and I'm as guilty of this as anybody I think I'm right most of the time <laughs> um and you know we, we we've got to be able to listen to each other and talk to our neighbors uh, even if we disagree and so that kind of era of goodwill is really important and a commercial here for the arts I mean the arts are are one of the ways that we do learn to listen to each other through songs Mm -hmm. and through plays and through poems and through just the kinds of explorations of the human condition that the arts are all about.
0: What's interesting of this this people of goodwill question and the Republican Party, you know, our co-host Reagan is not here today, but in my experience, and I'm guessing yours too, Most of the Republicans I interact with on a day-to-day basis, I do think of people of goodwill and of high integrity. It's the D.C. politicians who seem to be answering to a different set of values or a different set of incentives, perhaps. But there does seem to be this odd disconnect where like the people in Oregon, the Republicans in Oregon that I interact with and that I meet and that I see are not people that I... Perhaps they have a, a level of permissiveness that you and I wouldn't towards... The misdeeds and egregious behavior of a certain Donald Trump and maybe others in the administration, but it doesn't seem to me to be like, I don't think that the the, what you're discussing filters all the way down to the local level, but maybe you disagree with that.
1: No, I don't disagree with that. And I have found the same to be true in Oregon that you have. I mean, I, I desperately disagree with the Republicans in the Senate boycotting the process because I think if you're elected to fill a political position, you damn well better be sitting there and making your arguments because you know you're going to lose about half the time and maybe more than half the time. But to just, you know, take off and deny a quorum, I think is is a very, very bad policy. But having said that, Washington, DC is a hundred percent seductive. And I think that the people who get there you know, very, very quickly recognize the kinds of special attentions and favors and publicity and money that you can get if you're in Washington, D.C. And so their entire uh, agenda is to stay there. Mm -hmm. And there's a great deal of political pressure from the parties, both parties, to go along with whatever the party leadership is. And when you're as divided as the House is now, the Congress, and the kinds of Mephistophelian deals that that uh, McCarthy has made to try to be the speaker and and keep his job, you know, there's just no stopping the kinds of of, of bad acting that can go on, and there's a hell of a lot of that going on.
0: Well, so. It's
1: interesting hearing you
0: speak about this because one of the things I was excited to talk to you about is your experience in 2008. And in 2008, you ran briefly as an independent candidate for the United States Senate. And I think your premise was essentially like neither party is rising to the occasion and solving the country's greatest challenges and that having part of your pitch was like if you win there will be other independents who could win across the country and that this like coalition of independents could be a a force for good and in governance you sound now to you know you mentioned you were radicalized in your time at NEA (laughs) but you sound a bit radicalized perhaps towards the left of the democratic party is that correct or do you
1: think it's more nuanced than that well, there are all sorts of nuances uh, <laughs> out there. My thought in 2008 was, you know, you, you described it well, Ben, and that is that the Republicans and Democrats in the Senate were pretty equally divided. And if there were, say, two or three, and there was already one, Bernie Sanders, independent there in the Senate, that and those three kind of got together and decided what the agenda could be, they could be the honest brokers between the parties to get stuff done. But Keep in mind, one of the things that I said earlier in this conversation, getting stuff done is not necessarily the agenda mm-hmm. for Washington, D.C. In fact, it's not the agenda most of the time. So, you know, this kind of I, I came away from Washington, D.C. thinking gridlock was a pretty good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it keep, keeps, keeps the bad stuff from happening, at least. Uh, but gridlock that shuts down the government or, or doesn't uh, raise the debt ceiling, that sort of gridlock is just mindless. <clears throat> so so
0: you announced you're running and you're a, you're a pretty big name in Oregon, like, you know, the Fronemaier name itself. But you'd also been in the headlines all over the place for NEA. And I think your reputation at NEA was kind of this like independent person who, you know, the, the people on either fringe might not love you. you know, you're kind of you're your own person. So you seem like the right kind of candidate to be a viable third party candidate. What structural problems do you encounter that make you decide this just isn't this isn't going to happen?
1: Can't raise the money. Huh. That's I mean, you know, if you if you were independently wealthy, and, and so I think some people have tried this, if you're independently wealthy, you probably don't have a constituency. So you're not, you know, all that viable either. But <clears throat> The argument that you get from virtually everybody is I don't want you to be a spoiler. And in the case that where I was running, Gordon Smith was the incumbent Mm -hmm. and Jeff Merkley and a couple of other Democrats were, you know, not well known. And my polling showed that I would pull more heavily from the Democratic Party than I would from the Republican Party. So I really would have been a spoiler in the Democrats sense. you know, I suspect had I stayed in the race that Gordon Smith would have been reelected. It was a close race as it was between Merkley and Smith. So that's one thing. But the other thing I think is that running as an independent, you know, Wayne Morris found this out early. and, And I think virtually everybody else has, except for Bernie Sanders, who's done it pretty successfully. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, you, you really don't function very well in Washington unless you're a major player in one of the parties.
0: So that, that's a D.C. consideration. But, you know, just last year in Oregon, I'm sure you were watching the Betsy Johnson experiment with interest because she sort of did the inverse of what you attempted at the governor. You know, she was a you were a Republican. She was a Democrat. She ran towards the center and she actually was able to raise quite a bit of money Interestingly, I don't think as much as the other two, but came in a
1: distant, distant third. What did you think watching that race? I was really surprised by that race, man. I thought that <clears throat> Betsy would be at least a spoiler and maybe, you know, would end up winning the whole thing. Huh. There were some things that well betsy is betsy i mean betsy's <laughs> going to say pretty much what betsy's thinking and that isn't always the most politic thing to do there was a gun issue that uh, i think uh-huh. uh, hurt her badly from at least lots of people but i i can't really i don't have, i i was astonished i mean i think she ended up with seven percent or something like that and I, I whoa i mean what happened there <clears throat> but i think the other thing is and I'm certainly not an expert on campaign strategies, but she peaked way too early Mm -hmm. and then was sort of old news for most of the election as it moved toward election day. It does seem like there's something perhaps like to your point, I
0: think a lot of people were, I I don't think a lot of people thought by the end that she was going to win, but I, I do think a lot of people thought she would be a little bit more viable. And I wonder like part of my interpretation of that is, you know, this is, more evidence of polarized partisan behavior from the electorate, and perhaps even greater evidence of the separation of the two parties and the sorting of society into two buckets. You're either on the red team or the blue team. And it probably is worse now, almost certainly worse now than it was in 2008. I mean, 2008 is the Barack Obama election over John McCain, where John McCain famously refuses to engage in conspiracy theories about Barack Obama. Barack Obama's running on this optimistic hope and change platform. You know, you fast forward to 2016 and it's a much darker kind of election on both sides where, you know, Joe Biden famously now says, this is a battle for the soul of our democracy, which I think to many of us in the politics space feels true. It does feel very weighty right now. I'm wondering how you think about polarization and the, if you have solutions or ideas of how this country navigates to a post-polarized world.
1: We've got to stop thinking about political parties the way we think about football teams. I mean, it isn't about just winning and losing. You know, if if this the sole platform, and the Republicans last time around didn't really have a platform, but, but if it's, it is voter suppression, I mean, God, how can, how can you... How can you say you're pro democracy if what you want to do is is keep people from voting? So that's a, a big issue. We we don't. <clears throat> my parents were always ticket splitters. I mean, they would vote for the candidate, didn't matter what the whether it was a Democrat or a Republican, they would vote for the person they thought was best. And that's certainly been my mo during the time that I've been old enough and privileged enough to vote. And you know, I think I think that there's some very good examples Jeff Golden's race here in Southern Oregon, where the candidates, you know, basically took a pledge not to badmouth each other. And for the most part, they didn't. And, you know, I just think that, that that's terribly important. You know, I'm not going to vote for you just because you're a Democrat, because you could have been, you know, just the biggest child molester ever, and you just happen to be a Democrat. That doesn't go anywhere, right. as far as I'm concerned. And you look at Trump. I mean, Trump, People didn't know whether he was a Democrat or a Republican. He was just a jerk. And so he says, I'm a Republican. And then, oh, you know, oh, yes, okay. And then he starts taking all sorts of positions that were absolutely contrary to what the Republicans had stood for before, like trade, you know, the tariffing and that, that sort of thing. And everybody says, Yay, he's our guy. Well, I mean, that's mindless. That is absolutely just just mindless because you know, all all you're looking at is the R or the D, as opposed to what the substance is. So given what you thought
0: in 2008, you had a thesis about how we might be able to get things done in the Senate that involved independent candidates. Do you see independent candidates or third-party candidates as a viable solution in 2023 today? Or do you think that that
1: just structurally doesn't work in the two-party system? I don't think it works. I, I really don't. You know, you look at somebody like joe manchin who is essentially an independent although he you know he says he's a democrat but he's very independent in terms of the the stance that he takes and he's had an incredible amount of power because they need him but you know he's not he's not going to be joe biden's favorite guy and if you have an agenda of substance like the biden administration has i mean i I think it is astonishing what they accomplished in really the first year, year and a half with all of the legislation that they got through that's really going to be helpful for the country. And, of course, we're now hearing that uh, Republicans who voted against all those things are championing all this money that's coming into the districts, (laughs) saying, well, what a great deal this is. But, you know, I I, I think government should govern. And unfortunately, if you have a bunch of independents running around, then you've got something like Italy where you can't govern. So I have Pretty much changed my mind on that. Have you put any thought
0: into, you know, there's several different, ver- there's open primary, there's ranked choice voting, there's the Alaska Final Five system that Catherine Gale promotes. Do you have any thoughts on small D democratic reforms that might do something to address
1: the the temperature in the room? I do. And my nephew, Mark Fronmeyer has done a lot of work on ranked choice voting. And I think Lane County has that. And I think those are solutions, absolutely. Because the way we have primaries now, it pushes the candidates to the fringe in the primary, and then you get the most radical candidates from either side. So I think the ranked choice kind of voting, where if your number one candidate is somebody who's way out on the fringe, it's a pretty good chance that that person is not going to make it past the first round. And so I think, you know, people would be more inclined either not to rank those people at all, or to, you know, look at the people that whose agendas are more consonant with their own feelings. Hmm.
0: So we've got a couple minutes left and I am not familiar with your work or writing on ethics, but I see ethics as a common theme in a lot of what you published and written about. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? What is your, how is ethics central to what you're
1: publishing today? Well, let me talk specifically. I've written three books on sports and philosophy. One is uh, on rowing, and it's a general sort of very superficial survey of philosophy from the pre-Socratics through the present day. The second one is on golf and ethics, and the third one is on skiing and mysticism, really, trying to get Hmm. the world behind the world. So let's talk about the golf and ethics book. I grew up as a caddy on the Rogue Valley Country Club. I started caddying when I was 10, and I caddied for about four years until I was about 14. And as a caddy, you're pretty much invisible and you're there with adults and you're pretty much, you listen to what they do. You see them and some of them are nice to you, some are nice, some of them cheat, some of them talk about their indiscretions. And and so my brother Dave and I would go home and tell stories about our catting to our parents at the dinner table. And it was hilarious. And, and <laughs> a very good way of my parents then segueing into, well, okay, well, what did you think about this? And okay. so I, those, I was thinking about, you know, where did my life plan come from? And a lot of it came from expressions uh, in catting and then my parents' uh, discussion with them at the dinner table. Hmm. Um, and, you know, ethics is. I'm using ethics and morality as interchangeable synonyms. Uh It's really a life choice, a bunch of life choices. And most of it depends upon having thought about the issues before you actually encounter the issues. I mean, that was a big deal when I went to Washington, D.C. I mean, you know, this Mm -hmm. what are the resigning issues? What am I going to do and what am I not going to do when I'm under this huge amount of pressure and the things that I'm doing end up on the front page of the paper tomorrow? You know, and most of us don't have to do that in our day to day life. And I certainly wasn't prepared to do that when I got to Washington. So, you know, ethics is in its final and most condensed way, thinking about what's going to happen and what you're going to do about it, you know, preparation. I did not expect
0: to be quoting Henry Kissinger in my conversation with you, but there's a Henry Kissinger idea of I think it's called intellectual capital. And it's the idea I think he's referring mostly to presidents. And like he's saying, once someone becomes a president, it's essentially too late to teach them new things. Like it is so everything is, is so rapid and challenging that there's no time to like actually expand your intellectual capacity. And it sounds like you're alluding to something similar on ethics. Like you have to build your ethical and moral foundation before you're in this high pressure position.
1: Absolutely, and I would point to lying. I mean, not professional liars, but people who lie typically lie. I think because they're surprised. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oh my God! Ooh, you know, how can I get out of this? You know, I, I could tell the truth, but but maybe it's better if I don't. There's a wonderful quote from uh, Walter Lippmann: "There can be no liberty for a community that lacks the means to detect lies." And uh-huh. uh, you know, I think as a society. That's really, really a watchword that we should all have. You know, we've got to be able to sort out the truth from the lies.
0: So my final question in our last minute here is, you know, thinking about some of those college students who are, another common thing I hear from them is they're interested in politics. They're interested in public life. They maybe don't want to run for office themselves. Maybe they want to work in government, but they don't really see that as a career and i loved reading about your sort of adventures in and out of government roles and some volunteer roles and some paid roles and you know you run at one point and but that's not really do you have advice for young folks particularly folks at the very beginning of their career who are trying to figure out what role politics or civic life ought to play in their future
1: absolutely and that is volunteer volunteer for those things that you care about. If it's the coalition for heating fuels and that, that are splitting wood out there and delivering it to people that need it, if it has to do with the food bank, if it has to do with the, you know, the reconstruction of the places that have burned down or the forest mm-hmm. trails or whatever it is that grabs you, just, you know, put yourself there and you don't have to get paid, but you will believe me get great rewards from volunteering and indeed you may find out that this is where you want to work and and direct your life but i just have that's how i got started in the arts i mean i just started volunteering for stuff and it really has been one of the most seminal and rewarding areas of of my adult life John, it's been
0: a pleasure talking with you. Uh, I know we've reached time, but I just wanted to say thanks for taking an hour out of your day to, to chat with uh, with me and to my listeners. And uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with
1: you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.